Aena mana ena reo e reo ringa tēra mā, tēna koutou, tēna koutou, tēna da tātou katoa. E te whare etu nei tēna koe, te papa e wahu nei tēna koe, e reo ringa tēra mā, tēna koutou, tēna koutou, tēna da tātou katoa. E te ringa tēra, e koroa, tēna koroa, tēna koutou katoa. My name is David Downs, I'm your... Session facilitator, your chair for today. Uh, if you are here for the session on female friendship, sadly you're in the wrong room. Um, we're highly likely to set some sort of record today as being the Writers' Festival uh, session with the highest number of swear words. So I will just, I've tried, I've tried to tell these guys they need to moderate it. This is not. We're not your normal audience, Dave, Willie. Dave, Dave, fuck off. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I will pre-apologise. Anyone. Uh, uh, <laughs> but what you are in for is a rollicking good session and discussion about life and about, uh, about uh, live life. So my name's David Downs. I am lucky enough to um, be here because I'm friends with both of these people. Willie for um, nearly more than 30 years. Dave for a few years as well and a great admirer of both of them. And have had the pleasure of, uh, of course, like hopefully many of you, reading their books, but they won't stop me by buying another copy of their book after the session out in the foyer. Um, that's good, Dave. That's good, yeah, that's yeah. good. Um, <laughs> always be selling, Willie, always be always. selling. Yeah, good. Um, and so today we're going to have a, a really interesting discussion, but before I get on to what that discussion is going to be, I need to remind you of a few things. Firstly, uh, work the name of the event into my introduction. I did that. Uh, it's called Live Life, and we're going to talk about living, and we're going to talk about um, the highs and the lows of life. Um, please make sure that your phones are on silent. Do that myself, actually. Yeah, good call. Uh, make sure that you um, check out uh, the, the Auckland Writers Festival on social media. And feel free to take some photos and, and post them and all that sort of thing. Um, because it's really good, you know, good, good for other, the festival. This is a fantastic festival. Look at the crowds that they're getting here um, this, these few days. It's also good for these guys um, as well. And, um, and essentially what we're going to do in this session is, is talk through the books that um, each of these guys have written and some of the themes that come through those books and then some of the life experiences that that's led to or that has led to the creation of this book. There will be an opportunity for you to ask questions as well. It's not all just us talking. So if you've got a, a burning question, I'll, I'll, you know, in about 20 minutes' time, I'll start asking for questions from the audience, so feel free. There are some microphones at the back, but given it's quite crushed and this is a relatively small space, you can probably just yell them out, put your hand up. And we're really keen to, um, to get some interactivity going. So let me um, introduce our, our two um, authors. First of all, um, Willie DeWitt. Yeah, that was, the, that was what yeah, I expected, actually, yeah. <laughs> no, there you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry, Will. No, no, it was great. That was the so worst. Much. I'll do it again, shall I? No, 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 don't push it. First of all, yeah. Actually, <laughs> given the boxing theme, I was thinking we should do a whole boxing. Yeah, because later on we're going to clear the stage and they're going to have a <laughs> uh, Anyway, Willie is um, well known as being a, a TV star, a, a comedian, stand-up comedian, a radio star, and for many years, you know, was, was for those of us who were watching TV in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, listening to the radio, he was a familiar voice and a comedian. And of course, um, through the later stages of his life, um, lately he's had you know, some real challenges as well, which he writes about in this pretty incredible book, which outlines his whole, uh, his whole journey over the last few years. Drink, smoke, snort, stroke, which is actually the essence, that's the entire book. Uh, that's the plot of the book. Um, and, it's a, and it's a wonderful story, and we're going to talk about that and about some of the, the life experiences. Next up, let me introduce Dave Latelli. Thank you. There we go. Slightly louder than Willie, that clap, I thought. Anyway, um, <laughs> don't want to make a big thing about it. Um, <laughs> Dave's another interesting book, No Excuses, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, um, that whole idiom and that theme of No Excuses. Dave is um, well known now for those of us who, who admire the work that he's doing around New Zealand, but particularly in South Auckland, and the communities um, there to motivate, to help um, people who need it, to create a food bank, to um, create a motivational classes. But he's got his own really interesting life story too that led to that, you know, and lots of parallels um, in terms of fame and fortune. Well, mainly, probably fame more than fortune, eh, I reckon. Um, <laughs> and infamy. Um, and also hardship and real, and real struggle. And so the two of them have got this, this in common. So please welcome to the stage, Willie and Dave. <laughs> All right, let's get started. So I, I mentioned that both of your books are about your life, so they're memoirs of your life. 
And uh, when you look, when you sit here today, looking at this room full of people who are expecting great wisdom from you, did you ever expect you'd be sitting in a room where people would thought that you would have wisdom to share, Willie? David. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, um, wisdom. At, the, at that stage when I was um, deep in my depression and my addiction, not at all, but um, post that, absolutely. Yeah. And it's the whole thing of second chance adages and everything else and being you know, grateful and all those things became cliche. I reckon all the, all the cliches now are, are true. The older you get, the better you are, were or whatever else in that sense. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. What about you, David? I mean, you spend quite a bit of time now with groups of people, motivating them, etc. That's not necessarily where you thought your life was going to end up, I'd imagine. No, you know, I always, you know, thank God that I'm not dead or in jail. Um, so, um, and like Willie said, it's, it's all these experiences that we've gone through and the hardship that you go through in life. And we always encourage people to not be afraid of failure because everyone, just like a lot of our children, they're afraid to try because they're too scared to fail. Um, so what we understand is that, you know, greatness can come from it and you can actually really help so many people going through similar things, yeah. you know, just from your struggle. Let's go back, right, though, for both of you, back a little bit to, um, maybe not to childhood, but getting close to that, you know. Because when I was read both of the books, I, I realised there's, there's so parallels in your, in your history, you know. You both were heavily influenced by your parents, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Let's talk a little bit about that influence of your parents. And, Willie, I know you, you've got some great stories about your mum, for example. Yeah, well, I was a blue-collar boy in a white-collar world. We were at, at the ice end of Ellerslie, and um, my dad, who was an engineer and things, uh, great attitude, great demeanour, great uh, persona, and he would have befriended people of that ilk, i.e. the Hortons, yes, those Hortons, and the <laughs> ensuing neighbours, and by the end of the following year, we were like, in with the in crowd kind of thing. Um, a fairly innocuous childhood, but the thing that with mum, mum was an amazing person, she was so uh, ebullient and great of humour and loving and caring. She got diagnosed with cancer uh, when she was in her early 50s, and um, it went from an, uh, a melanoma on that side up, and then another couple of years up to the knee and then into the old bod uh, terminal. So I love my mother so much. She was my heart, my soul, my life. And she was literally there. She had refused to come to go to hospital, came back to die at the hospice. Don't worry, it gets better. It's a bit sad. <laughs> but um, she was on her second to last day and I was, I was in charge of being taken care of her that, that, that day. And she came too. And I was just like, she was struggling to get my arm, I get my hand. She got my hand and looked at me straight in the eyes. And I thought she'd say something like, be the best you can be, be the most motivated, wonderful man you can ever be. And she looked at me and said, keep eating your parsley. <laughs> <laughs> straight up, that was the last word she said. <laughs> but you know what was beautiful? What, beautiful what, what was beautiful was that was her saying to me, I love you, you know, in the most simplest, beautiful way. And that was my mum, and that was the legacy that she, wow, just, sorry, get a bit teary on that yeah, one too. beautiful. Yeah, thank you, man. So if you see Willie with green teeth, you now know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Dave, yeah, I mean, you, in a different way, very different way, but your, your parents, or your father in particular, had a, had a big influence over you. Yeah, look, it's, I wasn't the conventional sort of upbringing. My father was the president of the Auckland chapter of the Mongol mob. My mother was a street kid from, uh, from Hamilton. Uh, they met, you know, I think they met when they were 13 years old, still together to this day, uh, helping a lot of people. Um, you know, my father burnt down his school when he was nine years old. Um, so uh, I was born into this life. A lot of, like, like a lot of youth are born into now. We've got to understand that a lot of these kids are being born into long lines of nothing. You know, they've never seen success. They don't know, they don't know what it looks like. Um, you know, he was a a bank robber by trade, that's what he did for a job. Um, you know, and, and that was what I was born into. My first memory of the police was them raiding my house when I was five, sorry, three. Three years old was the first memory was that raiding my house and stealing all my Christmas presents. But now I know it's not stealing, they were confiscating, but. <laughs> but you know, that was like a lot of youth that we deal with, that's their first introduction into the system, something so traumatic. And from that day on, I hated the police. You know, and it took me too long, and I, and I had to check myself because I was passing a lot of that trauma on to my children. Yeah, so that was the start of my life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's tricky, tricky, tricky times. And both of you then went on to, you know, interesting careers, non-conventional careers, put it that way, not quite bank robbing, or, or maybe we'll get to that actually. But, close. Uh, yeah, close. But, um, and I really, I love the bit in your book, you're talking about your first job as a waiter. Do you want to tell, you know, how you started out life as a waiter? Well, we haven't got time for that, David. That's I, a really no, good story. No. I like. <laughs> many, many years ago, <coughs> at that time, um, 
the 80s, mid 80s, early 80s, um, I got a job at Wheeler's Restaurant, which was the uh, place in Ponsby, which was like the well-to-do up, up market place to come. So I consequently had an interview with uh, Tom Hodgeworth, who was the owner, lied through my teeth and said, he said, you have experience? I went, yes, of course I have experience. Can you open wine? <laughs> I can open wine. Food? <laughs> Not only easy. <laughs> I had never opened a bottle of wine or eaten anything flash. I don't know what a nausea of ravioli was, for God's sake. So he said, come back that tonight and we'll do it. So I wandered in, all the nice attire. I'd been in a restaurant enough to know you just, you literally see people down and ask them if they want a drink or something. Did that. Got that up. Got the tray for the first table I was serving. Dropped the tray. <laughs> smashed, tickled down the whole hill. Um, I went, sorry, first night. I went, oh, make a note, don't see him again. Um, so got that through. And then it came to the actual service of the wine. And I was going, and the, the ma manager went, like, take this down to table three. Open the wine. I went, great, fine. So I get there to the wine on the table, present the wine. They go, yep. And I go, here's the back of the bottle. <laughs> Joke. Here's the bottom of the bottle. <laughs> oh, how they laughed. And then um, I go, oh, yeah, opening it. So I, I bought my trusty pump thing. You know the ones you get it? You pump up the thing and you pump it up and you, if that one's going, they'd be pumping up. Could you pump this up too, please? <laughs> I was pumping that up. So I went out, I can't get it out, get it out, get it out. So I pump, pump, pump. This is a top market, up market restaurant. So it's like, you know, I'm pumping this fricking bottle. <laughs> it goes, pop, it bursts. I go, oh, fuck. I went, oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. First time I went, oh, they're going like the indignation of like utter horror. And I, <laughs> Tom came when I thought he was going to say, sorry, he's from Barcelona, but um. <laughs> They, he looked at me, he said, come this way. He scored me that way. He said, look, you've never opened a bottle of wine, have you? I went, no. He said, you've got a good attitude, but man, you've got three days to practice opening wine, do it yourself, and come back in three days. So I did. In three days, I opened 46 bottles of wine <laughs> in my father's cellar. <laughs> and by the end of that three days, I was a complete pisshead. <laughs> I went back, but that was the beginning of, of, that, of that adventure in my life. Yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I just imagined it. It gets worse. It gets worse. Yeah, yeah. That's only that was the worst story. And Dave, yeah, I mean, one other thing I didn't know about you, because we knew about the boxing, I didn't know you were a rugby league star back in the day too. Oh, I wouldn't call it a rugby league star. I just was chasing that dream like a lot of, you know, young kids. We, we think that that's our way out of, of poverty. We're playing sport. Yep. And um, so I chased that dream for a long time. Yeah. Here and Australia, yeah? yeah you, were playing, you, were, you were almost a Kiwi though, man. You were up, right up there. I played for um, New Zealand schoolboys, um, you know, and started playing seniors when I was like 16 years old. And that's sort of where I got introduced to alcohol as well yeah. because, you know, I was playing with men and I was quite big. Come to wheelers. And, um, you know, so we started, you know, drinking quite heavily. And, and, and but it, my life, that was when I, my life sort of took that massive detour when I had my first... Um, you know, really serious knee injury. Uh, playing, it was where I played. I made a Maori rep team, and you know, we we're training on a field that had no lights. You know, potholes everywhere, and, and I shattered my knee. And my life was on this one. I was, thought I was going here to be this massive league star. We we're already in talks with Manly, and you know, my father was living his dreams through me. Yeah. And then I had, then I got this massive knee injury. Yeah. Uh, so you know. This took that first detour in my life. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and that's, again, parallels in both books is this idea that sometimes you have a, a path that you think yeah. you're on in life and then things change, you know, and we're going to jump around a little bit in time, but, you know, one of the, you know, sometimes they change for the positive, sometimes they change for the negative. I mean, you, Willie, you, you got discovered as a young stand-up comedian and suddenly put into the limelight as well, but like, but like Dave's experience, but you're on TV now. Yeah, yeah. and also the, the biggest um, gig that I remember and loved so much was doing Radio Haraki or Huraki now, which it, was, which it is, and um, my tenure of 11 years there, yeah. and loved it, loved it, loved it, the immediacy of contact with the people uh, on a daily basis, and you just go in, do your job, get out. But the thing was to listen, yeah. and, and, and shut up and look, look, learn, listen, which I did. Same with the TV too, but the, the funniest bit with Radio Haraki was, they had this, we were giving away a Harley fat boy motorbike, you know, with 20 grand, and it was a hundredth caller, which we did. So we'd like, literally go through and count to 100, we'd call a 1, 2, 7, 22, up, Upward and upward. We get to 100. I pick up the phone, hello, Haraki. What number am I? You're uh, number 100, which means, what's your name? Dave. Dave, you've won the Harley Fat Boy with 120 grand. We go, we're going nuts. He goes, oh, yeah. 
Well, here's Dave. How do you feel, Dave? And he goes like, oh, you're good. <laughs> and we go, well, just hold the line. We'll get back to you. But Dave has won the Harley Batboy. Hey, hey. And we go in there and I go, Dave, what the hell are you doing? He said, oh, oh sorry, man. I just got a bit of a problem here. And we go, what, what is it, Dave? He said, I haven't got any legs. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you going to do? I couldn't have the cash, could I? <laughs> Can I just say that? Yeah, no, no, it didn't go that well. But no, it didn't go that well, which might have led to why you suddenly, like, like, like Dave, but for a different reason, you suddenly your career switched again, didn't you? You left radio, you left TV, and, a, and a, depression came along. And then depression came along, which I'd had since early days. Anyway, I remember the, the biggest thing for me was at being at home, of it being at school, and as a 15 year old, and sitting there crying my eyes out at lunchtime and not knowing why. Because again, don't forget the stigma then of, de of depression and mental illness. I was like, you know, taken to the doctor again mm. in the early 80s and being given some, quote, happy pills and to harden up and take the happy pills. Mm. Harden up. Don't be a soppy. Don't be a wuss. So that was my sort of introduction. So I, I stigmatized it. I kept it away, kept it at bay, mm. didn't communicate, didn't share, um, but, but had to also man up, I suppose, to that sense, in that sense and, and come to terms with that too. But it really was a history that I had from 15, 16 one of the themes that both of your books have, and this is picking up on that point about, you know, putting on a persona. Like, Dave, you had an experience of your life where you, when you became the butterbean, you know, the fighter, the brown butterbean. And, uh, and you really nicely laid out in the book this, this, this image that you put out. You put on this persona, uh, but behind the scenes, it was a very different life you were living. And I know Willie's got the same sort of thing. Of You sometimes put on a persona for yeah. other people, but actually your own experience of life is different. Can you tell us about that stage of your life? Yeah, well... You know, so I'd, I ended up, you know, I'll go back a little bit further. When I was, uh, you know, I was playing rugby league, I got injured, and then I ended up, you know, going to uni and, and trying to, you know, I thought, oh, well, if I can't play league, I better learn something. So, and, <laughs> and um, but, you know, my, my life just went out of control. My father, he got caught uh, for cultivating marijuana. You know, we had, we had uh, two part-time jobs while I was at uni. One at a video shop in Eastridge Mall called The Video Shop, and the other one was working as a security guard in one of my dad's warehouses, Total Road Mangare. Um, we weren't the type of security guards to call the police. We were there to stop people robbing our, <laughs> stealing our crop, you know. So we had guns there, and you know, and it was it was crazy. Um, and I often talk about this to youth because so many of youth think it's think it's cool to be a gangster, you know. A lot of these criminals are, are, and gangs are, are, are highlighting. The highlights, you know, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and it's all this just trying to lure young, vulnerable children who have no money and want it into that life, you know. And I always talk about what crime took. You know, when my dad went away, uh, I went right off the rails. I quit uni, I quit my job, and I ended up, you know, moving into a tinny house, selling drugs, doing drugs, and just trying to be bad, you know. Because in that life, which they never talk about, in that life, when the men are gone, your family is open slather to other predators in that life. You know, you have to, so I, my, I had my mum, my two younger sisters, I, I, and I thought I have to be bad to let everybody know my uncle's gone, my dad's gone, but I'm still here. Don't even think about coming, next, coming to my mum to try and take anything from us. You know, and, and it all just culminated where I, I, I came home one night and I was just so, we talk about depression, depression never really goes. You know, it's, it's always with us. Um, I came home so upset with my life, chips on both my shoulders, hating the world, hating the system, but more importantly, hating myself. You know, I came home, I walked into the kitchen, I grabbed the kitchen knife and I put it, a steak knife and I put it into my chest. Um, you know, and I was just hated my life. I remember getting out of Middlemore Hospital, sitting on the doorstep of this tinny house, and I was staring at the roof. Now, I'm not religious, but I have faith, I believe in God. I just stared at the sky and went, surely God, I'm meant for more than this. You know, I didn't know what it was, but I knew it wasn't this. You know, and I got up and I worked. And I ended up playing league in North Sydney Bears, Australia. Um, you know, played league in France, played some rugby in Singapore, contracted to Manly, ended up owning two supermarkets you know, from that doorstep, um, only to lose it all again. You know, I wish they taught me about what GST was. But <laughs> 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 and, 
<laughs> and fucking income tax. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's the first one. And, you know, I spoke to a couple of thousand kids last year and I asked the teachers, are you teaching basic money handling skills? Is that a part of the curriculum? Can you believe it's not? You know, what's the point of calculus, trigonometry and all that shit? That should be specializing. Teach us budgeting, how to handle money, you know, because I wish I knew, you know. So anyway, I lost it all. I moved back here and February 2014, I had to come, my good friend David Higgins had to pay for me business class because I couldn't fit in economy. I was weighing well over 200 kilos and I was a mess. I hated myself, I was in bad shape physically but worse shape mentally and I'd lost my children. That was the worst thing, you know, my, me and my partner, we split up, of course we did. I was an idiot, you know, so it's my fault. And um, my friend said to me, you know, do you want to come to Germany? Because he was always worried about me, you know. He didn't want to leave me alone, and he's always worried that I'd do something. So he said to me one day, Joe Parker's fighting in America, in Germany, do you want to come? I said, of course I do. He goes, well, you better train hard because you're not coming business. So was, <laughs> <laughs> and, you want to uh, fit in the chair, you yeah. better get the fit. And, yeah. and over there in Germany, they'd never seen such a large tattooed islander before with a shaved head and angry, you know, and depressed. And, and uh, they said to the head of German boxing at Joe Parker's weigh-in said, we want to see what you weigh. I said, well, shit, I do too, because every time I jump on the scale back home, it says error. <laughs> so literally, they dragged me up through the crowd like this, through the crowd like an elephant by the trunk, and they put, put me on the scale, and I weighed 178 kilos. Wow. And while everyone else was, whoa, this guy's so fat, I was just so happy. And the first time in my, in my journey, I realized how much weight I'd lost. So while everyone was shocked, I was like, yes, I'm the man. I'm the man. I'll beat anyone here. I'm the toughest man in the world. Come at me. And that's when Dave had the idea. Wow. That's it. That's what you're going to do. Everyone was laughing. Duco's renowned for having circus acts on their boxing shows. They said to me, Dave, you are the next circus act. We're going to roll you out before Joe Parker fights. We're going to call you the Brown Butterbean, name you after a famous American boxer who was a large white guy called Butterbean. I was a large brown guy, so they called me the Brown Butterbean. And that's it. Like, I had to be this persona. Like, you know, I... I had to call whatever area Joe was fighting and I'd call that area out. I could only talk about myself in the third person. This was how I was earning money. I said, if someone asks me, Dave, you're hungry as a butter bean's got to eat. You know, that's what, <laughs> you know, stupid stuff like this, you know. So that was, the, was the character. I had to play it. Like, that's how I was getting money. You know, in the wow. first year, I, uh, the first year of boxing, I, I only earned, you know, I got like $24,000 and all of that Is went that to my family. after GST? Yeah, <laughs> luckily I learnt my lesson, I went to the accountants. Oh, and, and I called out, the, the first fight I fought on was Brian Minto versus Joe Parker. I jump on a scale, it still says error. Um, everyone laughs and I said, no one in the country, let alone South Auckland, is tougher than the mighty brown butterbean. And they put it online, they put it on the paper, they put it on the crowd goes wild and people went off. Like, they couldn't handle it. Like they, they thought, who is this fat bastard saying he's the toughest man in the country? How dare he? You know, and so now I was already very depressed. Now I had to contend with online hate. You know, like I was getting messages like, uh, we're going to shoot you on site. You're a disgrace to all your people. Humble yourself. The worst one I ever got was, we're going to send you some rope to hang your family with. You know, at the time I was getting these, I was now living in a community home on a mattress on the floor in Clendon, living with a rapist and a robber just out of prison. You know, so, but again, I just encourage people, all this struggle and all this adversity you go through, you know, you just use it as fuel to be better. And yeah. that's what I did, you know. Did you yeah. like the butterbean persona? Did you? Oh, it came quite natural, but <laughs> 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 it was just, I was into wrestling. I loved wrestling growing up, and so I was just playing a wrestling character. You know, wow. But, but yeah. I just go, why does no one under, like, get it that I'm joking? Like, <laughs> but, sure, but the hate thing must have been, had a real effect on you too. It was hard because, you know, I didn't have my children, but I always talk about having that why. Like, mm. I had to have my kids back and I'd stop at nothing till I got all my children back and I was a better father, better example. And I just used it. But it was, it was hard, especially like, you know, when the, the, you know, obviously that hang your family, but, you know, oh. when people are saying, you're a disgrace to your people. Yeah. You know, Sorry, David, you can yeah. go now. I'm yeah, and no, I'm just that. thinking that I'm quite <laughs> redundant here. That, that hurt. You know, that, that hurt when, yeah. when, when saying that stuff like that, especially not knowing, you know, what you're going through. So, say, like, with, with, you know, when they see you as a, this radio and TV person, they don't know what's going on behind the smile, you know, or behind this character, the, the mask that we put on. What changed for you? What changed? Uh, well, it only went on so long where people could, you know, I, it was like I was, it was an act. Mm. And I had to tell Duke, I said, look, I can't keep acting like this asshole. Like, 
people are seeing the work that I'm doing, so I have to change. It's like any wrestling story. There's the bad guy becomes the good guy, and, and, and we just managed to utilize all that following and the profile I was getting, because I was fighting always on TV before Joe Parker. I just used it as, you know, all those contacts that I had in the media then are the same contacts we have now whenever I want to call out the mayor or want to call out the yeah. government. I use those same media contacts. Let's hold that for a minute. <laughs> Let, let's, let's wallow in Willie's misery for a bit longer. Um, <laughs> that's all right, mate. It's okay. Um, I mean, jump, jump forward. Because I think it's an important part of both books is that you've both got these sort of multiple inflection points in your lives where things look really bleak, where things, yeah. where things get to their absolute worst. And uh, at the risk of sort of dragging you back, Willie, you, I mean, one of the, those big times for you was clearly the stroke, which nearly claimed your life. Well, it did twice. Yeah. Um, but again, that was due to my um, addiction, my depression issues. Um, and I can only blame no one but myself. Um, I think the, 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 the drug addiction was punishing myself because it was the self-loathing thing that we both experienced and the self-hate. And you don't deserve this and you don't deserve that. Mm. And that's how things were. So I kicked, uh, kicked hard on the addiction, which made, made, made matters worse until uh, culminating in uh, uh, April 2016 and I had a massive stroke. I was left on my own for 11 and a half hours because I was living alone. Got, finally got found. Um, and I was literally in a situation where they said, he's got 24 hours, um, he's in a, a bad way. He'll either make it to 24 hours or he'll die. Mm. So I made it to 48, after 24 hours. Yeah. And then um, literally uh, went from there, but it was a close, close call. Mm. Uh, and, and so I went through the whole gamut of emotion, the whole array, array of being like, had the realization the first six months I couldn't, I was just like, uh, How are you, Willie? And, and yeah, yeah, literally like that. Um, I'd push my face up to, I had enough now you know, to push my face up to get rid of the droop and stuff, but it took time. And then when that dawned, the gradual realization was that, um, Oh my God, this is it, this is me. I'm depressed, I'm, 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 in dep I'm disabled, and this is the reality. And the funny thing happened with that too, it was like, having had that moment of complete deflation, it was that situation where I just went like, well, can't get any lower than this. I can't. So learn to live with it, accept it, get, get better. With it. And so I embraced it. And it was like this huge turnaround for me, man. It was like, wow. And I know we said before about all the cliches. It's about the, the appreciation factor of all that too. Mm -hmm. And having that and, and being grateful, but um, also learning to accept the limitations physically. And mentally, that was my own deal. Um, and, and that was kind of a huge thing for me as well. But uh, the resolve thing is, is amazing now to have that um, and the second chance stuff too. Very nice. We're going to have a chance for the audience to ask some questions, but before we do, just to lighten the mood a little bit, I, I, there's a story in your book, Willie, which I just love, and I hope you don't mind me asking you to pull out a particular anecdote about Sir Howard. Oh, no. um, but, you know, Willie's book is full of just cool <laughs> stories of his life on these things, and if you've lived through the <laughs> 80s and 90s in New Zealand, um, <laughs> Willie, you know, David, David, met lots David, of people. What, what's the Paul Holmes one? I'm oh, not the Paul <laughs> Holmes one, no. You won't do that one. We're leaving the Paul Holmes one well alone, <laughs> my friend. For legal reasons, we're not going to talk about that one. I'll be telling everyone I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but no, Sir Howard, you know, and back, so back in the day, a comedian's got to eat, you know, just like the Butterbean's got to eat. Yeah. You would do corporate gigs. We did, and we had the uh, esteemed presence of Sir Howard Morrison at this uh, building or compound, really, and... St. Helier's, and literally, um, it was three houses together. The guy, the wealthy man had bowled everything else. And there were a, a Colin McCann and uh, Donald Don Binney in the foyer, and the real ones, not the prince or, or anything else, but the real, um, where I'm going, oh, well. We get into the main room, and there's what's his name, the famous man, and his famous wife, you know, uh, what's her name? And um, they're there, and it's a surprise for the wife, who's a huge Sir Howard Morrison fan, loves him, so she doesn't know. So we go back to the stage. We've got um, Mark Wright and I, and we're doing the comedic bits. And um, it's a big birthday party, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah huge, yeah, huge, big, big birthday party. Yeah. And there's the, there's, there's um, Verve Clique, there's um, Christelle, like three hundred three hundred bucks a pop. Mm. And I'm going, wow, this is pretty cool. But alcohol's alcohol, brother. They're all getting pissed. They're all just there <laughs> going like, yeah, Howard. Um, he uh, is the big surprise. He rocks up, very oh, just amazing man, and. Uh, he introduced me, he, I, I met, introduced him, he introduced me, sorry, and I went, um, Sir Howard, he went like, Woody Moo, and I'm going, wow, it's Woody Moo, <laughs> brilliant. So he's, it's about, he's, got, he's got a back and track, he's about to go out, and, um, we, and he says, could you do my intro, please, and 
sure so how would we get out there hang on before that the, the the head of the party was had arranged him to do like a half hour set oh so total sick of that little bit yeah yeah but they're all fan. but yeah. he literally so howard said um he didn't tell the, the host he just said to me look and learn what he moved look and learn so he goes out he does this um he appears in my so howard morrison everyone goes yay wow and the, the wife goes like whoa so howard boo. she's like this really like um more even more pissed um how great their ass! Oh, that was arm, arm. <laughs> she gets there, she's doing all that. So Howard starts, he goes, is there a song you'd like to hear, madam? And she goes, how great their ass! And he, just, he goes, oh, Lord, my God. Everyone starts sweating with the music. People are crying. Women are having babies. It's amazing. <laughs> just there. <laughs> he finishes the song, how great thou art! Everyone's in tears, the standing ovation, everything else. He goes, thank you so much, and have a great evening. Good night. Now... <laughs> Mr. Host has said a 45-minute set from Sir Howard Morrison. So I go running back. Sir Howard's there going, well, that went well. <laughs> we're going, uh, uh, and then the host comes in, the owner, goes, Sir Howard, a great sh sh set, sh show, song. Um, but literally, could we just, um, you know, you said it was going to be for the whole 45 minutes. And he went, my dear man, listen. And this, everyone's going, yahoo and crazy, and he's going, does that sound like a crowd to you that wants more? Yes, but we don't, because it's all about how they feel at the moment. I'm going, great. So um, he goes, and on that note, um, thank you so much. Can oh, I have my check? Can I have my check, please? <laughs> check the check. And then um, the guy goes off, the uh, host, owner, and so Howard, is, he's there, and I said to Howard, hey, good luck with the next gigs. And he went, what gigs? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, man. You learned from the best. I blew the whole thing, sorry, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I blew the I'd rehearsed that too. God damn it. <laughs> it's all right. That's it. Seven years later, I'm still... Questions from the audience. We've got, a, we've got an opportunity here to ask David Willey. Any questions? Otherwise, I'll keep going. Oh, look at that. We've done them. Here's a... Um, I really like to ask um, the I'll repeat that for everybody. What's the, that, Dave's opinion on the suggestion that's floating around the media from certain political quarters about sending youth to boot camps. Last year I was speaking to the army and I was, it was about mental health. You know, and same, he was talking about the stiff upper lip, harden up. It's, man, it's even worse in the army and, and, and defence force and they're having massive issues with mental health. Uh, so they're talking about, you know, it's okay to be vulnerable, you know, and ask for help, you know, just give them the, the story. Um, and then one of the commanders come up to me and goes, anything that the NZ Army can do? I said, well, I was, I'm wanting to set up a program where, because we see it, it's out of control. We see what's happening, you know, and the impacts. And so I want to set up a program where we can send offenders because uh, I, I just the arm because I trained the team and I saw the, 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 the what can happen and the benefits you get from training really hard and having that regiment. Um, so I said, well, I'd like to have you know send offenders here or to wherever, and you you run these boot camps, but I don't call it a boot camp. But I said we already run youth programs now, so youth. There's no point these kids being um, assholes to them in a boot camp because that's what they're used to. They're not, they, don't, they don't have love. They don't know it. But it'd be good to have the, the regiment of that type of boot camp but surrounded by all of the other you know, support that we give with mindfulness, job readiness. But then it's not just, um, you know, just everything, life skills, that, that they're not being taught, right? The thing is, it's not just, like you've got the parents that are just so busy trying to live, right? Trying to survive. We all know what that's like now. It's hard. That they're just not there. You know, I get messages from parents 1 a.m. in the morning, just finished work, please help. 1 a.m., please help me, you know? But then you've got the parents who just don't care. But it's always the kids that are missing out, you know? So you've got to surround them, but then it's not just what you do in this boot camp. It's what they, you do when they get out. You've got, like, the government, and I, I actually, I, I was talking to the army. The next day, uh, Bloody Luxon announced it. <laughs> this is a boot camp idea. And I, I, you know, I, I text them, and I said, well, 
because he was getting hammered about it. He goes, oh, Dave, I don't know why, you know. I said, well, you can't just say boot camps. You've got to talk, and link, talk about everything else you're going to do. So otherwise, people just think it's the old boot camps that didn't work, you know. And he said, no, well, we're going to do this and that. And I said, well, you, whoever's your, you know, your marketing team, you might want to get rid of them. Because <laughs> I would have led with that. You know, I'd lead with all of this new things that we're going to do. And so I, 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 I agree that there's got to be something different, but you can't, it's not just the boot camp where you train the fuck out of them and then, take, and then they go back home when the sense is done. Because you have to be willing, like I said to Luxon, I said to Carmel, and you know, we have relationships with all these different politicians and we try and leverage all of them to get what we need. Um, you've got to, all governments, not just this government or the next, it's all governments have to agree here. The, the model, that, and we've seen it with the floods and the cyclone, the model is always community with business and government working together for the common good. In any social issue, there'll always be a community group in, on the ground doing it for nothing. You know, empower them. Right? And you have to be willing to take losses. They throw all this money, the census is an example. They throw millions and millions of dollars at the census, right? And I was one of the influencers. They gave me money to go and do some posting and all this sort of stuff. They did it for everyone. But the problem is they did it too late. You know, so if you, if they, the media rang me and they said, Dave, um, what's your thoughts on the census? I said, look, I don't trust you. I don't trust the system. You, the people don't trust the system. You can't just throw millions and millions of dollars at it uh, around November, you know, and then expect these different results. You've got to work alongside the communities, work alongside the families, be willing to take some, some it's not going to get instant results. Because if you want to change, the, the break the cycle, right, you've got to be looking to help the kids, and then the grandkids, you know, because if so, some of the times we go to, I was talking to you before, we go to homes and we're delivering food parcels. You know, we, we, we go there and sometimes we don't want to deliver it. Go, look, they're partying, there's beer bottles everywhere. And I oh, fuck these guys, we want to do it. There's, there's, you know, there's other people that need it. But then you see the children. Okay, it's not their fault. So you have to, if you want to break the cycle, you've got to help the parents, you know. And, that, and that's what it is. If, if we don't, if something doesn't change, we think it's bad now. Imagine the children of these people doing it, of these kids doing it. You know, people, so I, I do agree with, with the boot camp idea, so long as it's wrapped around with all the other social support and who and, and those people that are, it has to be the people delivering it that are already doing it from these community groups, not trying to create new jobs from people who have never lived, don't have any lived experience, don't know what it's like to sell drugs, don't know what it's like to have no money, don't know what it's like to look at your children and, and, and see hunger in their eyes, you know, and how am I going to do it? How am I going to feed my kids? If you don't know what that pain's like, you, should, you, you shouldn't be teaching these kids. Because when, when you're t talking to someone and they know you've lived it, they're more likely going to listen to you. That's why what you've been through, Willie, is so powerful, and we're talking about coming over and doing some stuff with us, because it's lived experience. You know, that's that's what matters. So, sorry, long long way around. I agree with boot camps. So long as they're wrapped around with all the other support, and you have to support the families when they come out, because you're still going to send them back to the same environment. You know, I was at a prison. I spoke to Willie Men's prison last year, and the, one of the leaders there turned to me and he said, "Dave, where do we go? When we get out, where do we go?" Who do we turn to? You know, we're going to go back to the same environments. We've got no support. You know, what, what, what are we going to do? You know, and I said, well, turn to us. Because if we can do it, so can you. You know, but to do that, you know, obviously we need more resource. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long nice. time. It's <laughs> uh, reflecting back on your story about being on that doorstep, having thought that, you know, you, you had another purpose. And clearly you do. Oh, let's talk a little bit, though, about the effect it has on you both. And, and you know, one of the topics we were talking about the other day was around this idea of burnout, you know, that you give everything, your whole energy, and particularly if you're someone who suffers from mental health issues at times yourself, you know, you, f you find yourself just burnout. And, Willie, a few times in your life you've had that burnout, ex unfortunately, experience. Absolutely. And, again, throw a really ugly element in the room, but it was the depression. And... Uh, again, the self-loathing aspect and things that we're, we're so familiar with. And that mental, it's so hard that you can't describe um, depression, you can't describe it personally. I, there's no warning, it just comes, it's, it, it was, it's dark, it's m monotone, it's a sepia grey look. And 
you just know the self-loathing and the self-hatred is huge. I mean, the irony was post-stroke in the bad bits before things got better, uh, being in hospital for a, over a year and, and then getting home, um, at the, my lowest ebb, there was a deck and I thought about if I could just jump over the deck. So I, I committed myself to do it. I couldn't get my, my dormant leg over, over, the, over the edge. So I was like, I'm going to end it all. <laughs> but I couldn't get it. I couldn't get my leg out. I couldn't get, so that, again, part of the turning point. Not, not my time. And I believe that you know, the three things that are inextricably linked are fate, chance, and circumstance. And they all tie in. They all work together. They all culminate in these things. And I'm here. And I'd rather be here than not here. I think you're meant to be here. I mean, that story just shows you, you know, you're meant to be here, you're meant for a bigger purpose of, of helping others. You know, that remind, there's a, a girl that's in that book, she talks about, it's Ina. She tried to kill herself three times. You know, the rope broke every time. You know, she'd lost her, she'd lost her kids, she was injecting meth for 10 years. Addict, do anything, anything for meth. You know, and she went, she tried to kill herself, the, the father of her children killed himself, um, and she failed every time. When she got out of prison, she found God and BBM. You know, now she works for us full time. And I said to her, what you're doing now, helping others, helping mothers that are going through the same things, that's what you're meant for. That was your purpose to be here on earth, was to help other mothers going through the similar struggles. So, and I think the same for you, well, brother. That's what you're doing, brother. Don't forget yeah. that as well. That's a huge thing. Mm. From where you've been to where you are now, whoa, it's incredible. And I have such respect for what you're doing and for your people that work with you too, man. Huge, huge. I want to read a little bit from your book, Dave, because um, I think it sums up what you just talked about. And I said, and it said in my notes I should read passages from your book, and we haven't yet, so I better get on with it. Um, <laughs> by the way, the book is for sale in the foyer. Um, and it, but it's beautiful. It sort of sums up your book to me. It says, I say to people that with everything that has happened in my life, I should be dead by now or in prison. There were a couple of moments where it could have gone either way, but I'm still here. I figure God must have had a reason for me to be here, and now, after all this time, I finally get it. I know why I'm here to serve my people. I'm a firm believer in second chances. I've had the benefit of being given a second chance several times in my life, and I took those opportunities with both hands and just ran, dodgy knees and all. I was fortunate to be uh, raised in an environment where there was no point in being judgmental because there was so much going on there was definitely not, that was definitely not on the straight and narrow, but there's also meant that there was so little that can shock me now. Creating BBM gave me the opportunity to take what I had learned, mistakes and all, and offer a safe space for people to change their lives. Awesome, eh? Thank you. So, tell us a little bit about that, because yeah, now we've just got ourselves into this big wash of, you know, depressed stuff. But now, what we see from you now, Dave, on TV is the, is the heroic work you're doing across the country. How do you turn from being, you know, 178 brown butter bean to becoming this, you know, massive part of New Zealand's infra social infrastructure? What was the decisions that you made that led you there? Um, I just really, I mean, the way I live my life is if I can help, I do. You know, we have to understand if, if we all live that way, this, this country will be a better place. If we can help, we should. Um, I mean, look, there's been, many people have asked me that. There's be, definitely been no plan. It's everything happened organically. Um, everything we do now, you know, it started with me helping one person. Everyone sees the big things we do and they say, man, I want that. A lot of community groups come to us and charities, well, how do, you know, we want this. I said, well, you've just got to help one person. You know, we started helping uh, my father-in-law's friend at West Trust Stadium out west, you know, to lose, lose some weight. Um, we started in, Trust, uh, in South Auckland in a driveway in Papatoi helping one lady. And I just said, I wonder who else wants to come, you know. And that, that's how it started. And I guess... We, you know, we're, we gained this, you know, social media presence. We're just sort of highlighting every everything we were doing was just highlighting on our social media. And it's funny as as I got out of boxing because I wasn't a good boxer. I tend to block with my head a lot. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, and I, I thought, how, you know, I want to still do these boot camps. I want to do them for free. I don't want to, and but still have to, you know, when I got my children back. I need to be able to put food on the table, you know, and and, and live, you know, and. At that time, we were staying in a, in a garage with no kitchen, with me, my, my, part, my, my wife now, and, and three children. And we, we, we went to get some funding, applied for funding. They said to me, where's all your data? I said, data? I said, Do you not follow my Facebook? You know, I said, okay, that's, okay. That's, not enough. that's not enough. And that you, need, you need data. And so, um, you know, that's where we sort of just use. All I do, like, is if people come to us because they feel safe to ask me for help. 
um, and, if, and if they're comfortable with it, and I'll just highlight what's going on or most of the time, what's not going on, you know, so, and whenever I say my people, it's, I'm half Samoan, half Māori, um, but I mean all people, because poverty, obesity, depression, suicide, it, it affects all of us, those things aren't racist, you know, they affect everyone, um, so whenever I say my people, I mean anyone in the struggle, and all I do is highlight what's, what's not happening, utilise media contacts that we've had over the years, we always have our go-to people, and just highlighting what's going on, and it's just sort of morphed into this, you know, massive thing that we've got now, and we take our profile very seriously, where we can have access and really hold our politicians to account, and hold people that are supposed to be helping us to account, you know, because if 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 if, if they're not doing what they're supposed to, well, then they should just get the fuck out of there, you know. And folks, that is the word called respect. Yeah. Right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. For everything you've done, my man. Well, yeah. I've done enough. I've done so much taking. Just, I want to do the giving now and putting it back in. And that's the message for me today is, is you. So powerful. Well, I'll remind you, in Willie's book, um, <laughs> which, which is a really interesting read. Willie, you know, he talks lots of funny stories about his life, but interwoven on that is a story of addiction, drug addiction, of, of depression, alcoholism, uh, basically, you know, the trifecta of goodness. Um, but right at the end, the, lo the lovely sort of ending to the book, and, and I'll read it back to you, Will. Um, and... You know, I remember because I sat with Willie as he, as he typed out this book. Tell, actually, quickly, tell the story about how you actually physically wrote this book. Three years, three fingers. Yeah, and, and emailed it in bits to me. And then I had to try and make a bloody book out of it. It was... <laughs> but with it came determination and a, a desire, a will, nay, nay, a need to actually make this happen. Honestly, I said to Willie, you know, three or four years ago, he was still in his stroke days, and I said you know, trying to encourage him. He's a bit depressed at the time. And I said, why, why don't you write your life memoirs? Thinking, well, that'll keep him entertained at least. Um, <laughs> and then I thought, but what'll actually happen? I, we, for the first few times we sat and we talked and you just told the stories and I recorded them. And I thought, okay, that'll, that's what it'll be. I'll, I'll end up having to write the book. And he was so determined. I've never seen anyone so determined. Literally three years of typing with one hand with a couple of fingers, emailing it because he's computer illiterate completely. All he could do was email it. And, uh, and it, but it's come together into this amazing book. And, the, and the, the, the end of the book, as I say, it's interlaced stories of his life with stories of depression and addiction. Right at the end, it talks about when you're in, you've just you're going through the rehab process, realizing that not only was it around the stroke, but it was also around addiction. I wheeled myself out of the rehab unit and I found the man I was looking for, PB. He was on his own and inhaling the smoke from his rolly like there was no tomorrow. I'd never seen anyone, man, woman, or addict, inhale that long and that deeply. And with one almighty drag, the cigarette he'd only just rolled was finished. I sat in front of this pockmarked, gaunt-featured shell of a man, wearing a beanie that reeked of stale smoke, black jeans that smelt worse than any mouldy mattresses and despair, and a hoodie that hid God knows what type of matted, unwashed hair, and my heart went out to him. I told him that it was such a courageous thing he was doing and how I had nothing but admiration for what he was going through. Furthermore, if he ever needed support or help in any way, shape or form, I was only a phone call away. He just stared at me. He probably thought I was a knob. But it didn't matter. I had turned a corner. I'm not out, but I'm on the way. Thank you. <laughs> it's beautiful. Both of, these, both of these gentlemen's stories have this incredible... Uh, vulnerability to them. They tell stories from their lives that, you know, bear their souls and, and show you sometimes parts of life that you don't want to face up to, that you don't think exist in our country, you know, and, and that's drugs and that's addiction and that's poverty and, and despair. But through the stories that they both tell in these really, really incredible books that you should buy in the foyer, um, <laughs> is this sense of optimism and hope and purpose, you know, from people that actually, um, you know, can show us how to, how to work. And, what I, and we, we're coming into land, but I wanted to finish by asking Dave to talk about some things that I think are really good uh, um, lessons. The four po, the four sort of pillars. Mm. Dave, do you want to tell us through? Because I think everyone can get some benefit from, from your wisdom and lessons. Yeah. Yeah, well, before that, I just want to also thank, uh, you know, uh, Sonia, who helped me to write the book. It's, uh, she's an amazing and also Penguin. She's, I'm not the easiest person to try and uh, follow around. And, and get stuff out of. So she 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 done well. She had to, she actually Sonia stand up, sis. She she got um round of applause, Sonia. <laughs> she got um. She actually fully immersed herself into BBM 
you know, started coming to boot camps and to understand, you know, what our co-papa, what the, what, what it is, what BBM's about. So we really appreciate that, and, and that comes through in the book. But yeah, I guess um, the four pillars that that I live by, and that's how I've rebuilt my life. You know, from literally moving back here in 2014 with not one cent in my pocket, living at my sister's house on my niece's bed I couldn't fit on, staring at a roof thinking, man, how did I fuck my life up so badly? You know, we've both been there. How did how this happen? We had it all. And, um, you know, all I did was I, I, I got up and I, I started. You know, and from now, from there to now, we have three community gyms, all free. Monaco, $140,000 a year, don't charge anyone one cent. Newland, 90000 a year, don't charge anyone one cent. We only get for our health programs for the ministry at Tefatsu Water, 200000 for our, That's the only health funding we get, uh, and that runs out in September. We've got a community kitchen, we've got a food bank, uh, all these things, uh, a social supermarket in Tukuro, which gives back people their dignity of choice instead of constantly relying on handouts, um, wrapping around them. How else can we get you? Are you working? If not, why not? Can we get you into work? What obstacles are around you that, that are stopping you getting into the workforce? You know. Don't copy my business model because out of all of that, there's not one paying customer. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a hard thing, you know. But Actually, just to interject, yeah. in, in all seriousness, the way Dave makes a living for his family is by talking to croups. Not today. He won't make much money today. But, but if, you, if you're in a position ever to get Dave to come to your workplace and pay him, that's how he makes his living because the rest of the time he gives away. Yeah, my first, my first talk I ever give, gave was for food. That's how, like, I had, you know, I had no money. And the, the, just the thought of having a nice meal at a conference, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do it. You know, that's how it started. <laughs> my first paid speech was like 200 bucks, you know, was my first. And now, you know, anywhere between seven and 10,000 a talk, um, you know, for an hour's work. I come in, I come in, <laughs> I come in, I deliver the sermon, I'm out of there. But this is how I've done it. You know, the first thing is I started, I don't overthink it. You know, everything I do, even with the social good we do and all the, all the all things that we do, if there's an issue and we can help, we do. You know, too often people think and they wait, I'm going to start tomorrow, I'll start next week with the government. Oh, we've got to wait to deal with all this bureaucracy and this red tape. Well, we've got to wait, 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 wait. Red Cross, we've got to wait to find out how to spend the money. You know, all, all these things, right? But the thing you've got to do is start with health. I've visited so many people in hospital on their deathbeds where their family have got me and please come visit my family, my mum, my dad, my uncle, my sister. They need your motivation when they get out. What we all need to understand is tomorrow's not guaranteed. You know, and every single person that I've visited in hospital all had one thing in common. They would give absolutely anything to have an opportunity to go back in time and start. They'd give anything. So while we're here and we have an opportunity, why waste it? You know, and, I, and, I, and, and, and I, everything I do. So, you know, we're not going to waste this opportunity. We're here. Let's start today. Okay? It was the same thing too. Mine was like, yeah. could have, should have, would have, didn't. And that was the thing that, the recurring thing. Mm. Well, we're going to start right now, Willie. Okay? We've got a program called From the Couch, okay, that I'm going to get Willie to come along and join. Okay, where we work out from sitting down. All these people with long-term health conditions, we get them there, they sit down, work out. The whole idea of it is to be able to stand up for 45 minutes, stand up from there, we want to get them to get down on the ground and back up again, because a lot of people, they fall down there in trouble. You know? So, we're all going to stand up if we can. Let's go, stand up team. <laughs> can we put some music on, uh, MC? <laughs> I'm down you, just, you sit down, you sit down, bro. You sit, you sit down, you sit down, you sit down. You okay. Oh, something a bit more upbeat. Oh, turn it up, turn it up, all right. We're just going to do some boxing, okay? Give yourself some room. Do not hit anyone, okay? Okay, we're going to just, just nice and slow. Just slow. Okay, make sure you're doing it from your chin. If you want to know why, go watch my last fight. Okay. <laughs> All right, okay? And then when I say hard and fast, we're going to go as hard and fast as we can. Just fast, okay? We've got our timer here. All right? Okay, so it's going to do a few rounds, okay? So cruising. Remember, cruise does not mean stop in any language that I know. Okay? Oh, you got the thing? All right. Okay. Hard or fast? Let's go. Yep, Willie, just straight out. That's it. Yep. Hammer fist, Willie. Hammer fist. <laughs> Later on, I'm going to add some music to this. It's going to look awesome, Willie. Okay, and cruise. Slow it down. Slow it down. All right, slow it down. All right, now we're going to punch up. Punch up. Film over there, Dana. This is going to look epic with some rave music to it. 
Hey, this, this is how I get work. They, they look at these videos and go, man, he must be amazing. <laughs> All right. Harder, fast, let's go. Straight up, straight up. Harder, fast. Okay. Okay. Five, four, three, two. Hold him up here. Straight up, straight up in the sky. Hands up. Who wants more? All right. Hold him up. Hold him up. All right. We're going to count down nice and loud from 10. If it's not loud, we're going to start again. All right. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. Four, three, three two, one. one at a time. High five Woo! to your neighbor. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor, say, well done, we started. <laughs> we started. <Hey. laughs> so that's really, that's really it. You know, like the, the way we, we built BBM and the way that we've, you know, we've literally, just through the floods, we've fed, just through the first part of the floods and the cyclone, just in Auckland, 15,000 people we fed. Okay, just in March alone, just in March alone, we fully furnished 50 homes. Beds, fridges, every single thing that a family needs. You know, and we started, the next thing is staying consistent. Being consistent understands, as understanding no one's perfect and life sucks sometimes. You get knocked down, but what do you do when you get knocked down? Scream a team, what do you do when you get knocked down? Get up again. That's it. That's what, that's what, being consistent about understanding that no one's perfect and you get knocked down, but you just got to keep getting up. I think about this, right, Willie? If I'd stayed down when I moved back here in 2014, if, I've, if I just gave up, I think about tonight, the thousands of children going to sleep with no food. Tomorrow morning, thousands of children waking up with no food. I think about the kids turning to their mom and saying, where are we sleeping tomorrow? You know, success for all of us is only around the corner, but we'll never realize that if we keep giving up. Third thing, being around good people, being around good people. You surround yourself with five idiots, what does that make you? <laughs> you have the sixth idiot. <laughs> surround, yourself, surround yourself with five people that only want the best for you, that are there for you, not for what you can do for them. Sure, Willie, when you're in your height of your success, you are surrounded by a lot of people that you're there, you're buying the drugs, you're buying the dinners, you're buying the lunches, you're buying all the drinks, everyone around you. But when you lose it all, who's there? No one. You know, surround yourself with people that are there because they love you, not for what you can do for them. Okay? The last thing is no excuses. Now, easy to say, a lot of gyms use it as a, as a you know, marketing, hard to live by. The only way you can truly live by this mantra is by having a very strong why and a purpose. My why was I had to have my kids back. I'd stop at nothing and I wanted to be better. You know, I'd close my eyes and I'd envision being at the airport, you know, and just being like this and having my kids run up to me, my three sons. That's what drove me through all the hate, through all the adversity. But my wife now has been an example for them, you know, with a new, new wife, new son, and three, three of my kids with me now, all of my children. My wife has been an example for them, but my wider why of me and BBM is our people, you know, our youth. We have to show it's up to all of us. Can we all say it's possible? It's possible. It's what? It's possible. It's up to all of us. We have to show our youth that you can have absolutely anything that you, that you want, that you deserve. You can have it all. Nice house, nice, nice car, nice partner, nice family. You can have everything that you deserve. And you don't have to rob, sell drugs, steal and ram raid and kill to get it. It's up to us. All you've got to do is start, stay consistent, be around good people and stop letting excuses get in our way. And that's the pillars. That's how we've rebuilt our lives. I had an inspirational session. Just to finish, Willie, um, uh, you were going you know, you to be inspired by Dave's um, appearance on TV, weren't you? And you, you were announcing now today that TV show that you're going to become part of, remember? Oh, yes. Dancing with the Disabled. <laughs> <laughs> It'll take off! <laughs> and now we will do the rumba in a chair <laughs> with Matilda, who's able-bodied. Oh, damn. So if there's any TV producers in the audience and you want a really good idea for a show, come and see us afterwards. Uh, look, thank you so much for this session. Probably not your normal Writers' Festival uh, session. You don't normally start punching in the air, but what an amazing opportunity. Please do stick around and go outside, have a check out of these two books. The, the humility, the honesty, the transparency that these men show is incredible. And please, one more round of applause. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa, kia ora! <laughs>